0: We're set? Okay. Um, During this period between resurrection and Pentecost, and today is Pentecost in the Western Church. Uh, We will celebrate it uh, the week after Shavuot among the Jews uh, in June because of the calendar differences this year. Um, Always something fun to explain to people Uh, who don't know that there are different calendars, right? Uh, During that time, we usually have our membership renewal because we are a membership-based congregation. So I'm addressing membership with attention to specifically Disciple Center membership. Last week, I talked about membership as being an active part of a body or a group, not simply being on a list or a roster. And I also talked about the types of memberships that the Bible talks about. Uh, one is peoplehood, uh, being the people of God for Israel as the result of them being the chosen people. And what we call the church uh, as a calling of people from the nations, that is Gentiles, as a people for God's name. Now ultimately God's plan is to put those together um, and uh, we, we should be living in Uh, that process and in that anticipation at this time. And the way we do that is through our membership in the body of Messiah or the body of Christ. Those who trust in the Messiah and follow him are joined into one body, given one spirit, and brought together as two groups into one, uh, as members of him and as members of one another. That that really is an important notion. I've talked about this before, but when you take the bread of the communion or or the holla, uh, the, the that bread connects to other bread. And we are that bread. We are that body. And the connection is that you're not an isolated loaf of bread. You're not a little individual body of Christ. When the Bible talks about the Spirit of God being in you... It's using the word plural, you, not me, us. And so the idea is that we are brought together as a temple of the Lord, as the body of Christ. We are his hands and his feet and his eyes. We are the manifestation of him on earth. And that is Jew and Gentile, male and female, bond and free, all having equal access by one spirit to God in that context. So not only are we part of the people of God, because as you know, not every Jewish person believes and not every so-called Christian believes, those who are believers and followers are part of this body of Messiah uh, that is an important part of biblical teaching. Then local gatherings of believers in synagogues and local churches, as they've been called, are practical mutual gatherings of households for worship, instruction, fellowship, and judgment. In that sense, reconciliation or explanation of how we should do something. This status is also given, in our case, to dedicated children and to unbelieving spouses within a membership household. Talked about that last week a, a little bit. Talk about it more uh, down the road. Um, but within the local congregations, there are often different types of membership, and we, we have that. Now, we live in a time when most congregations are beginning to drop the idea of membership. In most cases, particularly among some of the mega churches, they are not churches, they are not congregations, they are parachurch organizations. They function as organized, incorporated ministries that have kind of a client base or a, uh, 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 a consumer base in the people. And the organization is run by the hired people and by a board that is usually selected uh, by those who are running the ministry. And, and so in a real sense, that's not a congregation in any sense of a historic synagogue or a historic church, uh, it's a new phenomenon that we have that that has that's part of the American idea of efficiency and and control. But in a congregation that really sees itself as a synagogue or a local body of uh, households that are gathered together for these purposes that the Scripture tells us, there are membership. Differences, and those are in part um, a result of living in this culture, and in part a result of struggling with uh, the situation that we live—not in small local communities, but we live in areas where uh, many people have traveled longer than a person would do in a week to get here this morning. Right, uh, when when you had to walk. So, we have a very different dynamic. So, there are three membership types that I talked about last week. The first one is congregational membership. That's an active, regular participant in the activities, services, and ministries of the Disciple Center. Associate members. Those are people who occasionally participate in activities, services, and ministries, but they are a regular member of another congregation. Usually these people are former Disciple Center members who have relocated or they're extended family members of Disciple Center uh, members who uh, come regularly to participate with us. There is another one that is only given to us because of Caesar, if you will, because of the government, and that's corporate membership or legal membership. Congregational member who is an elder of this congregation or a corporate officer elected by this congregation or who has volunteered to take on a fiduciary responsibility for the legal corporation that this congregation owns um, for the purpose of dealing with the government is a corporate member and and a person can be uh, a corporate member but if they hold certain positions in the congregation they have to be for the purposes of the congregation controlling the corporation and not the corporation controlling the congregation. will talk about that down the road. Today I want to talk about the criteria for membership. And I have done this in the past theologically. I've talked about the scriptures that talk about us being members of one another and how we operate in that way. And I want to do it a little different so this will be a little more dry in that sense because uh, it's, it's less looking at biblical text and more talking about the practical way that we do things. So a congregational member of the Disciple Center is somebody who has requested membership. They have spent some time with us. The congregation believes that they fit with us. And uh, the congregation then, if they meet the basic requirements, uh, votes them in, not in the corporate sense, but in the congregational sense, we welcome them into the congregation. There are two things that a person uh, needs to meet in order to uh, have the criteria for entrance into congregational membership. The first one is a profession of faith in Jesus as Lord evidenced by baptism. Now, that opens the whole door to what baptism is. I want to talk about it briefly. The second one is an annual commitment to be in covenant with the congregational membership of the D.C. And I want to talk about that one uh, today as well. So I'm going to start with baptism, not go into it as much detail as I could. I could do a whole series on that. Uh, But I want to talk more about the covenantal relationship that we have with each other. In Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20 a passage you're very familiar with Jesus tells his disciples that where they go or as they go that they are to make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded them and he said I am with you even to the end of the age. Now this great commission that we talk about that is given to Israel, given to the disciples of Jesus for the purpose of making disciples, I think initially, of their fellow Jews in diaspora. But as we see through the mystery of the gospel, this opens the door for Gentiles to be called uh, unto God and baptism becomes part of that issue. So baptism is the initiation ritual Of discipleship. It involves a confession of Jesus as Lord and a belief that God raised Jesus from the dead. And this confession is made not only in the ritual of saying it, but in the ritual of engaging in a behavior of baptism. A baptism is a biblical ritual that goes back to the Mosaic law. In the Mosaic Law, there were times when people had sinned and they were told to bathe and put on new clothes and then at sundown they would be clean. That was in effect a baptism, an immersion in water. And then it was also common for women uh, at the end of their uh, menstrual cycle to go to a mikveh. And to immerse themselves. And they were said to go from death unto life. And that also was the idea of baptism. Items also from time to time would be immersed uh, in baptism. And the general meaning of all of these. Was going from a state of commonness or uncleanness. To a state of holiness and cleanness. That's what that was about. And that involved the unholiness and the commonness of being in sin and needing to then move from that status in repentance uh, into uh, an appropriate relationship to God. It is that baptism that John the Baptist begins to do. John says, The Messiah is coming. The preparation for the kingdom is there. You are not living kingdom-oriented, you are living worldly-oriented, and so I baptize you with a baptism of repentance. Now John's baptism at the Jordan became very popular. It was not a new thing in Judaism, it was understood, but it had this messianic identification with it that began to threaten, if you will, the establishment. And in the context of this, some of the Pharisees and scribes and others who were part of the leadership, but not necessarily obedient to the Lord, uh, came down and John says to them, uh, Who told you to turn from the wrath to come? There's going to be a judgment. We need to turn. Bring fruit of your repentance. So it's important to understand that the baptism itself, the immersion does not cleanse, it manifests the cleansing that is there. Once the heart has changed, once the cleansing is there, the baptism is the ritual that brings it into psychological reality for the individual and it also manifests it to those who know that this ritual has been done. That's really important. The danger of believing that baptism, just putting water on somebody, cleanses them, is part of the problem that happened when Jesus' disciples were not washing their hands before they ate. And they said, the Pharisees wash their hands before they eat, and your disciples don't. What's what's going on? And Jesus said, don't you understand? It's, It's not from outside that defilement comes. We don't become unclean because of something outside. We become unclean spiritually because of the things in our heart. It is the, he said to the Pharisees that were hypocritical about this you wash the outside and you don't do anything about the inside. Wash the inside and then when you wash the outside, the whole will be clean. And that's the key. Baptism is for those who have turned and are now manifesting their turning, otherwise the baptism has no meaning. So we see this as an initiation then into discipleship of Yeshua uh, all through the New Testament and particularly the book of Acts. And there's one place that's particularly interesting, uh, Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9 verse 10, this is the passage where Paul has been uh, struck by the Lord and, and blinded. And um, then God is going to tell someone uh, named Ananias to uh, come in and uh, go to Paul. So it says, there was a disciple of Dama- at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am. Lord, and the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, Straight Street. Now, why is it called Straight Street? A lot of streets aren't straight in the Middle East, and this one was, right? So go down to this Straight Street and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him that he might receive his sight. And I, Ananias said, Lord, I, I've, I've heard about this man uh, uh, from many. How much harm he did to your saints, uh, your holy ones at Jerusalem. Notice the holy state. These people are holy. This guy's not very holy. Uh, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, and kings, and the sons of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me, that you may regain your sight, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, you can't be filled with the Holy Spirit without becoming holy, right? And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. Now, Paul didn't get baptized to become clean. He had repented. He had become clean and now his baptism was a manifestation of that. And so that is an important part of this. The Bible knows nothing of an unbaptized disciple. And therefore, baptism is one of our requirements in membership. Uh, Baptism has become a divisive issue among Christians uh, because of its use for other purposes and part of that is because baptisms have multiple purposes. The initial baptism that Paul went through there was not John's baptism. The Bible is very clear that those who were baptized in John's baptism and then came to knowledge of Jesus were baptized again. Because there was a different meaning to that baptism. Uh, And that baptism was the initiation into discipleship. Whereas John's baptism was a preparation to wait for the Lord. So there are different meanings to different baptisms. And when people argue that our baptism, this is the meaning and no other baptism is valid. That's when we run into battles in, in the congregations and in the churches. Very early in the uh, history of the church, Christians began to baptize their infants. They did this to identify a ritual of children coming into the community in the same way that circumcision did it for the boys of Uh, Judaism. Now the girls didn't have that. They should have gotten some idea with that. What was common to the boys and the girls in uh, Judaism was dedication, not circumcision. And so dedication of an infant is really the entrance of them being brought into the community ...of the faith, awaiting the time when they will make their own profession of faith. And that's how we practice it. We do not reject somebody's infant baptism, but we see it as a dedicatory baptism... ...and not as a baptism to initiate uh, being a disciple, an adult disciple. And that's why in our congregation, children are dedicated and then they, they go through baptism... During their confirmation as they become an adult. Uh, so there are people who have even rebaptized themselves when they have been in rebellion against the Lord for a period of time, kind of a recommitment baptism. I think these things are useful, but we have to be careful that they're not all sanctioned in Scripture. Okay, it, in that sense, they're Christian but not biblical. But they're not. Anti-biblical. That's a different issue. So, baptism is one of those issues that we need to be aware of. Uh, As you know, in our congregation, uh, people are not members, uh, with the exception of dedicated children, or spouses, uh, members of the congregation, treated as members of the congregation, unless they're baptized as a profession of faith. Now, the other thing, and this is the one that is more important. We don't make you get baptized all the time, right? Uh, But we do go through this annual uh, recommitment at, at Pentecost. Judaism and Christianity are covenantal religions. They understand the relationship with God to be a covenant. We understand our marriages to be a covenant. And we understand our connection to each other in the congregation to be part of a covenant. In fact, in Baptist thinking, a congregation is defined as a group of baptized believers united by covenant. And so it's very explicit in terms of Baptist theology. Some of the other denominations include that, but aren't quite as explicit about that that in that way. So what is a covenant? Well, first of all, let's take a look at Hebrews Chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, which is his blood, is the blood of the new covenant, by a new and living way which he has inaug- inaugurated uh, for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, Over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That's our hearts sprinkled in the sense of the blood sprinkling that was done in the uh, Mosaic covenant, and our bodies washed with pure water. There's that, being prepared to be holy and go with the Lord. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For the one who promised is faithful. And we are to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some is. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day of the return of the Lord. The, the ultimate fulfillment of the, of the day of atonement. Now it's very hard to read these verses without understanding that we have to do this together that this is a communal covenantal notion that we uh, belong to each other so how does that operate well a covenant is an agreement between persons that bind them to each other in relationship to that agreement certainly that's true of a of a marriage that's true of uh, of other things now it's more than a contract And it's more than a pledge or a promise. It is in fact a sacred vow. And it is a trust between the people. Made with God or made before God. uh, Which brings judgment upon the one who violates it. I changed my mind is not a good thing to say in a covenantal agreement. That judgment may be temporal or it may be eternal based on the context of the covenant. So what exactly is our covenant as the disciple center that we agree to do, in a sense, uh, each year? What are we committing to? Now, why do we do it every year? We do it every year because one of the problems of uh, human beings is that we forget what we're committed to. Uh, you know, And so the renewal is a reminder. This is one of the reasons why in the, in, in the more liturgical churches, you will see in the labor or a small little uh, basin, uh, water that is used as a person comes into the sanctuary. And they may put a, uh, the sign of the cross uh, on their forehead, reminding them of their baptism. They're not being baptized again. They're reminding themselves that I am baptized and I belong to this covenantal group. And so it's these reminders that we do. And so we annually remind ourselves that we are committed to each other. Now the other thing is, as time goes on, some of us may move away and our commitment to the congregation can't be fulfilled in that context. And so it gives us a way to... Uh, In that covenant. And make the covenant meaningful. Instead of what happens in a lot of places. Where people are members of churches. That they haven't been in in years. They may be members of multiple churches. uh, Because their memberships are never dropped. Which means. That the membership has no real meaning. We're trying to give this. Being part of one another. Real meaning. So what is it that we are. Covenanting to. First of all. To participate together in this congregation. That means that we come to the services. Now, it doesn't mean that you come and sit here. It means that you come and participate. When we pray, you pray. When we read, you read. That you read on occasion. That you open the ark. That you ring the bell. That you sound the shofar. That you give testimony. That you are actively involved in communal life when we are gathered together as a a holy community. It also means that you, in, you involve yourselves in the Holy Day observances that may be together with us or it may be in our homes, as many of us uh, have done that, And the life cycle rituals that are done in our homes and in the sanctuaries, the dedication of children and those kind of things. And uh, if you didn't notice, you might want to look on Facebook. Uh, Trevor's put something up there about some of those rituals to get you thinking about some things. Uh, There may be a test, right? (laughs) So you want to think about those things, right? Uh, Secondly, uh, we are covenanted to view the sacred scriptures as the foundation of all that we believe and all that we do. There's a reason we pull out the Torah and the Gospels. As Isaiah says, the law will go forth from Jerusalem and the word of the Lord from Zion. That, that's what's happened. And we are tied to that. We are tied to the understanding that this is a revelation from God. Now we have Bibles. The danger of having Bibles is they just become comfortable. So this is a reminder that these are The word of God in its Hebrew form and in its Greek form uh, that we show and the, the kids are in here. And then we say it in those languages. All of that is to remind us and to participate in this so that we know what we're doing. Now, that biblical text is then informed by the traditions of Judaism and the traditions of Christianity. And drawing from both of those great traditions and some of their subtraditions, we draw together our understanding as a congregation of how we ought to function in our liturgy and in our lifestyle and in all of that. Uh, and that then becomes normalized and expressed in the Disciple Center. We also covenant ourselves to be fictive kinship with the household members of the D.C. in a manner that sometimes may take priority over our extended family members of our own families. That's not easy. But we are fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the household of God in a local community. And while we have believers in our extended family and we certainly have a close relationship with them, there is something just like our household becomes unique. The congregation becomes unique in some of these priorities. And that's, that's, a, that's something that requires that we see ourselves that way. But that's also why when somebody's in need in the congregation, we try to be there uh, for that purpose. Just like we would for any family member. So that fictive kinship that ties us to the Lord ties us to each other. And we are covenanting to be accountable to the membership and the elders when we are caught in sin, particularly that which threatens our own soul or the unity and testimony of the disciple center. Nobody likes that. But without that, we have no covenant. There is no covenant to say I agree to do this with you. And then I can simply not do it, and there's no repercussion. So, there is in a covenantal release uh, uh, arrangement and agreement an obligation that brings upon it judgment by God and judgment by the group. Now, the goal is always reconciliation. But it has to be done with the knowledge that there can be a line where we have to withdraw from each other until somebody reaches that point of returning to obedience to the Lord. And that can happen to any of us. That's why the scripture says the elders that sin are to be rebuked publicly. That's not good, but we have a higher responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required, right? So part of the covenant is an accountability. At a church that has no membership or doesn't deal with its membership, uh, there's no accountability. And we all know the stories of things that are going on in congregations around us. So uh, those are the essence of what the covenant is about for us. Now what about associate congregational membership? The basic criteria for that is that they have a profession of faith by baptism, that they are actively members in another congregation. One of the dangers is somebody claiming that they're a dissociate member of the disciple center where we don't have any accountability with them, and they have no congregation to which they can be held accountable in which they are following the, the agreements of theirs. So... What we want is people who are part of the body functioning in a local congregation but want to associate with us on occasion, then that would be appropriate in in that sense. Their occasional participation is again in our services, our holy days, our life cycle rituals in that context. And we believe that by them becoming an associate member, they are supportive of our covenantal requirements. Uh, not coming in to disrupt that, but, but believe that those are important for us to follow. Uh, in most cases, again, these are uh, family members of yours that come regularly and want to be a part in that sense. Though they don't have to, they can just come with you. right? But if they think they want to come sometimes on their own, when you might not be here, it would be nice to have them do that. And former members, because I want people to feel like they're always a part of us. Just like you're always a part of your family, even when you get married and go elsewhere, right? So, what about corporate membership? The requirement of corporate membership, which is a legal membership, and only has there's the, there's there's God doesn't care about legal membership. God doesn't care about corporate membership. For the most part, we should see this as. Just something that has to be done to render to Caesar. In many churches, corporate membership becomes the big deal and it creates all kinds of political stress and strife among members because they think that if they have a position, they have authority. And then you have problems. We don't have that. Because we have to sign contracts for this thing, because we have to have some kind of agreement with the bank to take our money, those things require that we have a legal entity called the Disciple Center, Inc. And that's purpose is just to deal with financial and legal matters on behalf of the congregation. To be a corporate member, you have to be an active congregational member. If you fit into one of these statuses, uh, you become a corporate member. If you are an elder of the congregation, you must be a, a, a corporate member. If you are an elected officer of the corporation, then you have to be a, a legal member. And if you have a status as a corporate member who has been elected by the congregation to be a corporate member, because some people want to do that, and take fiduciary responsibility for the congregation. The congregation can give you that status. That group only meets when we have to meet for some legal reason. Uh, And for the most part, they do what we tell them, so they don't have any power. But we do have that, and it's important that you understand how that works. Down the road... It is that membership that will be the front line in the event that there is some kind of governmental pushback or persecution on the congregation. Because they, they will be the conduit by which that would happen. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. So, corporate membership involves a fiduciary responsibility for the corporation with the state of California and with the United States federal government, because the corporation operates through its officers and members at the pleasure and under the direction of the congregation. So, the reason for this is to begin to get us to clean up our act a little bit, because uh, there are things happening at governmental levels on public institutions uh, that are at the least troubling. We had one this week that many of you n- know about that's affecting schools and other areas. And the question is, what will have to be done by other quasi-public Entities. Now we're a little bit protected because we are a private corporation, a private entity. We don't have private we don't have public services, and that will give us a little cushion, but it won't be a complete it's not a moat with alligators. It's just a, a wall that says members only kind of thing. Okay. So we'll see where that goes down the road. So next time I uh, talk about this, I want to talk about the responsibilities of the membership and the expectations we have in the process of development of discipleship and membership. But I think that's enough for now because I'm already bored with it. You've got to be terribly (laughs) bored with it. So let's pray.